It looks like we have a, is that on? Can, is that on? Yeah, okay. Good morning, everyone. Looks like we um, got a good speaker here today. We sold out every seat. We even brought a few extra in. Um, my name is Brian Vogue. I'm a professor of engineering science and surgery here at Dartmouth, and it's my pleasure to uh, welcome Rakesh Jain um, to speak with us this morning. This is the Nowers Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds, as well as the keynote speaker for our Dartmouth Center for Nanotechnology Excellence Symposium, which has been going on all day and continues this afternoon up in Auditorium G. Uh, so this joint symposium today, uh, at noon hour, is uh, is jointly hosted. Uh, Rakesh Jain is the Andrew Work Cook Professor of Tumor Biology at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Many people know him. Uh, doesn't really require much of an introduction, um, but I will say his uh, research is primarily the areas of basic and translational tumor pathobiology. His work on cancer therapies led to the discovery of the alternate use of perceptin, anti-tumor pharmaceutical compound produced by Genentech, an inhibitor for blood vessel growth and necessary for tumor growth. He uh, has award-winning work on tumor biology on many aspects, uh, most recently what he'll be talking to us today about normal vessel normalization and microenvironment studies. Um, the last time I saw him give a talk, I think it was maybe at RSNA or another conference, where it was literally two football fields of people, uh, 24 projection screens, and he was like a dot so far it was like a microscopic dot in the far end of the room, so I, I couldn't see anything, but I watched on one of the 24 projection screens. So he has an enormous presence and following. Uh, it's nice to have a slightly more intimate situation to see him give his talk today. Um, he has more awards and distinguished lectures than I could possibly read. Let me just say he must spend all his time going from distinguished lecture to distinguished lecture, but he's so um, he's a member of the National Academy of Engineering, the Institute of Medicine, and the National Academy of Science. Uh, he has enormous presence and impact in the tumor biology world. Uh, I am required to read his disclosures, so let me do that now. Dr. Jane has financial interests in the past 12 months, grant research export with Medimmune and Roche. He's consultant with Noxon Pharma, Zengina, WebMD, and Light Biosciences. SendevRx, X2it, major stockholder in X2it Pharma, Enlight, SendevRx, and other financial interests with a board member of H&Q Life Science, H&Q Healthcare Investors, and X2it. Uh, Alan Hartford, our course director for the CMB activity here, reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of the presentation through peer review. And Dr. Jane does intend to discuss off-label investigational use of product or devices, bevacizumib, sinubradinib, sorafenib, and He is not receiving direct payments for commercial entity with respect to this activity. So Dr. Jane. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for that very kind and generous introduction. I have this, I think I had that on, and I don't know if you can hear me or not. Can, can you hear me, guys, in the back? Yes, yes. They can. Good. So thanks again for those very warm, welcoming words. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, and uh, it's not my first time, but at a different campus and a different venue. 
And it's a pleasure to see some of my former students here, <laughs> and also current students from MGH and Harvard, who have five of them who came in here just to make sure that there are at least five people in the audience. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I'm going to do today is um, present to you a new principle of cancer treatment, and we refer to that as normalization to microenvironment. What I'm going to do first is uh, discuss with you how we look at tumor microenvironment in animal models, as well as in patients. And I'll present to you convincing data that abnormal tumor microenvironment is abnormal structurally and functionally. And I'll try to convince you that this abnormality not only blocks the delivery of drugs of all sizes, starting from conventional, conventional therapeutics to nanoparticles to cellular therapies, but more importantly, what I'm going to try to convince you that this microenvironment locks the efficacy of these therapeutics once they get there. And the thesis I'm going to put forward is that if we can repair these abnormalities, uh, and the word we use is we normalize this microenvironment, we can not only improve the delivery of therapeutics, but also improve their efficacy. And I'm going to show you examples from both bench and bedside in support of this concept. And so uh, these are my disclosures. You've already heard about them, but uh, please feel free to read them. So let me first show you how we look at tumors. So we look at our laboratory tumor as an organ, an organ made of not only just cancer cells, but this organ is made of a variety of host cells that have entered the tumor, that have been co-opted by the tumor. They include fibroblasts, myofibroblasts, and both resonant and transiting immune cells. And all these cells are nourished by blood vessels and drained by lymphatics, and they're all embedded in an extracellular matrix made out of collagen, glycosaminoglycans, and so on and so forth. And what our work over the last uh, nearly 40 years has shown is that each of these compartments, components of this tumor microenvironment are abnormal. And they block delivery and efficacy of drugs in different ways. And I'll show you our attempts to repair those. The way we look at tumor microenvironment in our laboratory is using what's known as intraviral microscopy, where we bring an animal with a, with a window implanted in, a, in an organ where we wish to examine events at the molecular and cellular level. We bring these animals to this microscope stage, and then using something known as intraviral microscopy, we can carry out molecular imaging, cellular imaging, anatomical imaging, <coughs> functional imaging, and we look at all these uh, parameters in response to not only tumor growth, but also in response to various therapeutic <coughs> interventions. And from the inside, we try to understand why a therapy is working or not and how to improve it. So this is what one of these windows, one of these approaches looks like. This is the work done in collaboration by our colleagues at the Wellman Laboratory. This is using OFDI, and this is the brain of a mouse. You can see the blood vessels in the normal brain in this quadrant. You see a glioblastoma growing in this. And just with the naked eye, you can see these blood vessels look different from these vessels. And as in the next several slides, I'll show you, not only they look different, but they function differently. Actually, they're highly abnormal in their function. What this technology allows us to do is look at uh, affect a different microenvironment on the biology of the tumor. So for example, if you take HER2-positive cancer cells and implant them in three different places, and say in mice, this in the memory gland, the breast, on the cranial in the, in the brain, and on the skin, and then you look at blood vessels in these three different sites, they look entirely different. So the first take-home message I want to take you, to you to take is very simple. 
the microenvironment shapes the biology of the tumor. So genetically, the genetic makeup of these cancer cells is the same, but you can just see just the casual observation, these tumors are very different. And just to illustrate how different they are biologically, if you inject a HER2 blocker in this site, this tumor responds very well. But the same tumor cells, when they're implanted here, they do not respond to this. The very superficial thinking is that perhaps it's because these drugs are not getting it. But that's not the case. Because there's adequate amount of drug, lepatinib, for example. <clears throat> and you can see phosphorylation of HER2 goes down in this site, but these tumors do not respond. Suggesting that even if you know everything about genetic mutation, we still would know about half of what, what to do about treatment of cancer. And we'll, we'll continue this theme later on. And you can see that the vessels look entirely different in this site. This technology doesn't allow, allow uh, does not require a tracer, so we can look at the same microenvironment repeatedly. And this is a video made by one of my graduate students, uh, uh, Ryan Lanning, an MD-PhD student. Every two hours, uh, this is a, a breast tumor growing in the memory gland of a mouse. And these are blood vessels, and he recorded these, uh, imaged these blood vessels every two hours after giving an anti-VEGF receptor to antibody known as DC-101. And what you see here, and I'll come to this point later on, these vessels are changing, but as in, in response to this anti-angiogenic therapy, these blood vessels are getting straighter, narrower, more looking, beginning to look normal-like. <clears throat> and uh, what this technology does is allows us to look at vessels so far in the external organs. But if you want to see spontaneous tumors arising in the internal organs, such as a colon of the mouse, then we need a new technology. And again, in collaboration with our colleagues at Wellman Laboratory, this is the endoscope that allows us to look at um, the colon of a mouse. And you can see these are the blood vessels on the surface of the mouse. They're arranged in a fashion that they are, every cell in this tissue is well oxygenated. There are no hypoxic regions. On the other hand, now if we do the same kind of imaging, in a genetically engineered mouse model, APC min, uh, mutant mouse, that develops colorectal cancer similar to patients uh, as these animals age. And we look at the images of these tumors, we see that in an 11-week-old mouse, these blood vessels do not resemble what we started out with. But you can see the regions of abnormalities appearing at this point. These are adenomas. But if you wait some more, a couple of more weeks, now you begin to see frank carcinoma, and you see the vessels are highly abnormal. If you wait a couple of more weeks, this is a 16-week-old mouse, and you see these vessels do not resemble at all what we started out with, but they have regions which are avascular, and these vessels have a very different architecture compared to what we started out with. So you can imagine, if you inject any therapeutic agent, you're gonna have problem with it, and of course, there'll be regions of hypoxia here. So the question you ask is, how good are these animal models compared to human tumors? So when I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, one of my, two of my postdoctoral fellows tried to make a cast of human vasculature, colon cancer. Mitch Posner, who's now chief of surgical oncology at University of Chicago, and Joanne Lass, uh, who's now at FDA, head of devices. What she, these uh, uh, two colleagues of mine, uh, collaboration with Dr. Noel Warmwork, who is the chief of surgery, surgical oncology then, injected a monomer into the artery of these uh, tumors when the tumors were taken out. This is about a half a kilogram, about a pound tumor, until it came out of the vein, and then he put a catalyst here. So the whole monomer polymerized, and he took this whole half a kilogram tumor and put it in KOH solution for about a month, so the, all the tumor was gone. The only thing left was the, uh, the vascular cast. 
And you can see that the vasculature of this is as abnormal, or let me put it this way, other way around, the vasculature of the, the xenografts or spontaneously arising tumors in mice is as abnormal as what you see here. So if you look at, at higher magnification, what you see is that blood vessels are quite abundant in some regions of the tumor, but in other regions of this tumor, you do not see blood vessels. And it's not because they do not exist. If you were to take this whole tumor and just stain it with your favorite endothelial marker, you'd find out the vessel density here is the same as the vessel density. But if you look at this in real time, what you'll see is the blood vessels are quite flow is quite brisk in this region of the tumor, but here it has shut down. And as you can imagine, the blood flow is going to shut down. It's going to cause hypoxia, problems with drug delivery. This is the region you're going to have trouble getting immune, immune therapy for. This is the region where cancer stem cells reside, and the list goes on and on. What is also interesting is that these vessels in this region are leaky, and therefore they are unable to hold the hydrostatic pressure inside them, and they're transmitted to the outside, and that's how they raise the interstitial fluid pressure. And we made these measurements in about 150 patients at while well, I was at Pittsburgh, at Carnegie Mellon, and subsequently at Mass General. And if you were to measure uh, pressure in a normal breast or normal skin of a patient, it's around zero millimeter of mercury, but in about 150 patients, where we made these measurements in a variety of solid tumors, primary tumors, or metastatic lesions, you see that they have a hypertension. They have a high fluid pressure. So the combination of hypoxia, uh, low pH, high interstitial fluid pressure, low pH, and hypoxia facilitates tumor pro progression, metastasis, immunosuppression, treatment assistance, and EMT and cancer stem cells. And it does so via many different uh, mechanisms. They include uh, by hypoxia and low pH uh, lead to genomic instability and unfolded protein response, switch to anaerobic metabolism, resistance to apoptosis, EMT uh, program and metastasis, induction of cancer stem cell phenotype, resistance to a variety of therapies, most widely studied is radiation therapy, it leads to inflammation, immunosuppression, and angiogenesis, abnormal angiogenesis. So given all these problems with the, low, with the abnormal microenvironment of the tumor, about 15 years ago, our laboratory decided that what we're going to do is try to alleviate this, try to fix this problem. So the question is very simple. Where does hypoxia come from tumor, or low pH? Well, hypoxia comes from only two reasons. Either you have poor blood supply, or you have too much oxygen consumption. We have very little control of consumption, so we decide to focus on the supply side. We ask the question, could we improve blood supply of the tumors? So what I want to ask, so, and we begin to ask the question, how do we do this? So what I want you to do is do a simple thought experiment with me. Something uh, I thought about in 1988, <laughs> uh, quite some time back. So if you're just watering a lawn, and suddenly water stops coming from your hose, where would you look for? What are the potential reasons? I didn't do that. <laughs> Somebody's phone. Anyway, so what do you think the water flow is going to stop here? Take a guess. Kink in the hose. Kink in the hose. That's good. So mathematically, what is that? Somebody reduced the cross-section area, right? That's what kink does. So how would you reduce the cross-section area? You stand on it, step on it, drop a ball on it, right? That'll do it, and the water flow will flow down. 
And if he could figure out who is dropping this ball and what this ball is, and if he could figure out how to remove it, you could resume flow in this blood vessel on this hose. So the question is, who is dropping the ball? What is compressing tumor vessels? Somebody guess? What pressure? Interstitial fluid pressure. <clears throat> How many of you think it's going to be fluid pressure? How many of you think it's not going to be fluid pressure? <laughs> okay, so let's see what it is. Let's do a very simple thought experiment. So you, you take a bottle of soda, watertight, <clears throat> completely, filled with air. Now you take it the bottle of the ocean, what's going to happen? You want to compress it. And this is your hydrostatic pressure has gone up as you go down deep in the ocean, right? And <clears throat> that's what's causing vessel compression. The problem is that this is airtight, right? If you were to make holes in this, and now you went down, what will happen? <clears throat> the hydrostatic pressure cannot compress blood vessels, right? Because tumor vessels are leaky by nature, and therefore fluid pressure cannot compress it. So what do you think compresses vessels? Tumor growth, and that will be like a little sea creature squishing, right? <laughs> so that's your tumor growth, right? So the question is, how do you go about measuring this? How do you go about visualizing it? And we began, we've been sort of grappling with this for some time <clears throat> until we came up with a very simple experiment. It's unpublished data of my graduate student. You take an orange and you just cut it, and you just watch it. This looks like art installation at a contemporary art museum, but, but it's not. What I'm trying to convey here is that an orange or an apple just would stay like this if you cut it. Now, if you do the same experiment with a tumor excised from a mouse, what do you think will happen? Do you see what's happening? It begins to swell. It begins to open up like a lotus. You want to see that again? <clears throat> Nothing happens to orange, but this begins to open up. Now, if you're an engineer, you know there's a lot of information contained in that simple experiment. From the shape, shape chain, from the deformation, you can calculate how much stress was stored in the tumor. So where do you think the stress is coming from? Why do you think it's opening up like this? Somebody from the back row, why do you think it's opening up like this? You relieve the pressure by cutting the capsule around the tumor. Somebody said capsule, right? Would you raise your hand who said capsule? Good, thank you. So what is the most capsular organ in our body? Normal organ. Kidney, great, so let's do the same experiment with the kidney now. Here's a kidney from a mouse, same experiment done and nothing happens. The kidney doesn't open up, even though you cut open the capsule. The reason is that when the kidney develops in our body, or any normal organ, it does not store stress. It does not generate. Things are happening in a normal way. Tumor doesn't grow normally. That's why all the stress stored. And that's what, so how would you find out where is the stress coming from in a tumor? What experiment would you do? I'm just trying to, this is lunch hour, you just had lunch, and you're probably falling asleep, I'm just trying to keep you awake. So what do you, how, what would you do? 
to find out where the stress is coming from. What thought experiment did you do? Or what real experiment did you do? Well, you will say, all right, it's coming from the capsule, or it's coming from cancer cells, or it's coming from X, Y, Z. And you will deplete that component, either genetically or pharmacologically, and see if the stress changes. Right? That's the experiment you'll do. And that's exactly this experiment done. But before you do that, you want to find out if this is artifact for a mouse tumor, or does it also happen in patients and human tumors? And these are the data uh, collected by two of the fellows in our laboratory uh, who found out that this is not only happening in, in mouse tumors, but also in human tumors. And these are data from uh, mass general patients. Well, you see that these tumors open up 30 to 40% when you cut them like this. So to answer the question, uh, where does this come from? Uh, two of these fellows depleted cancer cells, stromal cells, collagen, and HA to see if they deplete solid stress. And the answer is they do. So if you take cancer cells and deplete them, see the stress, the opening of the, the goes down. If you do the same with the stromal cells or collagen or hyaluronin, suggesting that each of these components contributes, they collaborate to create solid stress, this compressive stress in tumors. So the implication of this would be that if you are to deplete any of these components, the blood vessel should begin to open up. Right? And, and let's see if that happens. So this was the experiment done by two PhD students uh, several years ago, about 10 years ago, where the hypothesis was the cancer cells were compressing blood vessels, and they depleted these cancer cells. But using diphtheria toxin, the thinking was that that will open up the vessels and one should see flow. And indeed, that's exactly what they found. When they, uh, These are the untreated tumors, and these are blood vessels that are collapsed, and you can see them, they cross-section. And these are the lymphatic vessels that are collapsed. But if you treat these animals with a diphtheria toxin that kills selectively only the human cells, you see that these vessels open up. You can see the lumen very clearly. So that would suggest to us that one way a blood vessel would open up if you could cancer, kill cancer cells. Now, this is a reasonable approach. The problem with this approach is that invariably, cancer cells develop resistance to drugs. So this would work for a while, then stop working. Moreover, there are many tumors where cancer cells are in minority. And one such example is pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, where less than 5% of the cells are only cancer cells. The rest is just stroma, host cells and the matrix. Now, if you deplete these 5% cells, you know, nothing's going to happen. The vessels are not going to open up. You need to do something else. You need to deplete the matrix. And this matrix is depletion is, became our mission about 10 years ago. And we are looking for different ways of showing that matrix depletion would help drug delivery in tumors. And in that search, uh, over the last two decades, we went through a number of molecules. The most recent molecule we have found seems to work is Losartan, a, a widely prescribed antihypertensive drug. And this is, these are the agents which are used for treatment of fibrosis, of uh, uh, cardiac fibrosis and renal fibrosis. So we decided to treat animals with the Losartan. And what we found out was that in two weeks, you can see that there's a tremendous drop in, in uh, collagen. But does this decrease in collagen translate into opening of blood vessels? So to answer this question, uh, uh, two graduate students recently, uh, Vikash Shohan and, and John Martin, treated a very desmoplastic, collagen-rich breast cancers with uh, Losartan. And this is the pre-treatment. You can see the, the blood vessels that are shown here in green color, perfused vessels that are only present in the margin of this tumor. 
Very few vessels are perfused in the center of this tumor. This tumor is highly hypoxic. Now, if you treat these animals for losartan, you see that in about 10 days, these vessels which were here, they are not new vessels. They are not angiogenesis. This is just decompression of the vessels which were here. They begin to open up. And when that happens, not only do you deliver therapeutic agents, you increase delivery of a variety of nanoparticles. This is about 100 nanometer, uh, nanometer particles injected either intratrumally or systemically. You increase that concentration. But more than that, you also improve the efficacy, in this case, of HSV particle uh, viral therapy, which is about 150 nanometer. And you can see the tumor response is, is improved tremendously. But also of chemotherapeutic agents, such as um, 5-FU or doxorubicin, and two different breast cancer models and a pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And you can see an improvement in survival. So based on these findings from our laboratory, our colleagues at National Hospital have begun to look at clinical trials. Uh, with this. And when we looked at retrospective analysis in the literature, we found out that indeed people have compared what happens when you give patients antihypertensive drugs without their knowledge that they're lowering collagen, do they improve survival? And you find out that in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, where the survival is less than 6%, five year survival, so one of the most dismal disease prognostically. See that in gemcitabine, the survival in these patients is about 9.5 months. But when they received angiotensin receptor blockers, you find out it goes up by about six months. Same thing in lung cancer and renal cell carcinoma. So based on our preclinical work and these three retrospective studies, our colleagues this summer have started a clinical trial in treating pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma by combining losartan with the current standard of treatment, folfirinox, for these locally advanced pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma patients. Now, hopefully, in the next several years, we should see some results on this work. So let's go back to the original picture. That, and that what this approach, what this work tells us is that the tumors that have that are rich in collagen or other stroma, if you go depleted, we could improve the blood supply. But notice when I showed you that tumor vasculature, blood vessels did open up in many regions of the tumor, but you did not see vessels flowing throughout the tumor. So the question is when. When you open up blood vessels, either they were previously compressed or not, they are still abnormal and they're still poorly perfused. We did not see 100% perfusion in tumors. So why, why do you think that is the case? What, what do you think uh, causes flow to shut down and it, uh, be reduced in a vessel even when somebody is not standing here? What other potential reasons flow would shut down in a vessel? <coughs> It gets kink. Kink? Kink. Kink is the same as somebody stepping on it. Oh. Somebody leakiness, right? So how do you make a blood vessel leaky? What do you put on it? I heard you. You said VEGF? <laughs> so, so VEGF was originally discovered at Hel by Dr. Hel Dvorak at, at Harvard uh, under the name of best corporability factor. And if you put VEGF on a blood vessel, you'll begin to see leak there. That's why it's called vesicular permeability factor. So VEGF is a double-edged sword. Tumors produce VEGF so they can induce new vessel growth by angiogenesis and other mechanisms. They also make VEGF to induce leakiness. So our thinking was that if you could somehow reduce this leakiness, 
by blocking VEGF, but not to the point where you actually destroy the blood vessels because VEGF is also a survival factor. So you need to find a sweet spot where you can remove enough VEGF to repair the vessel, but not so much that the vessel would be completely eliminated. So our thinking was, if we could do this, we could induce blood supply in this tumor. And this is what led to this concept of vascular normalization. And molecular level, what we proposed was that in a normal tissue, signaling from proangiogenesis molecules is balanced exquisitely by antiangiogenesis molecules, such as VEGF signaling is balanced by signaling from, say, thrombospondin ones. And as a result, the blood vessels in a normal tissue are both structurally and functionally normal. But in a tumor, due to genetic and epigenetic reasons, this balance tips in the favor of proangiogenesis. And now the resulting vessels are highly abnormal, both structurally and functionally, as I showed you in earlier videos. And our thinking was that if you were to combine, if you were to bring this imbalance to balanced state by either removing some of the proangiogenic molecules or adding some antigenic molecules and bring this imbalance to this state, perhaps you would prune some of the inefficient blood vessels, repair the rest of the vessels, and we refer to this, this vasculature as normalized vasculature. And our thinking was if he could do this, hypoxia in tumors will go down, perfusion will go up, interstitial fluid pressure will go down, pH will begin to move towards the normal direction. And if you were to give chemo, radiation, and immunotherapy while the vasculature is normalized, perhaps you could improve therapeutic outcome. And our thinking was that if you continue giving antiangiogenic therapy, and if the therapy is potent, we may actually prune a lot of blood vessels, which may shrink a tumor, but at the cost of increasing hypoxia, which I already showed you, creates all kinds of problems. So if you increase hypoxia further, you're going to see even more problems. But fortunately, this happens only in animal models. In patients, except for renal cell carcinoma patients, this is what goes on. Tumors switch to other angiogenic molecules. So from VEGF, they will switch to FGF, IL-6, IL-8, the 39 other molecules they will switch to, mm -hmm. in order to make blood vessels. So the goal of our laboratory right now is not only to exploit this window, but also to extend this window to the whole entire duration of uh, therapy. <coughs> So you can imagine this was a very provocative idea uh, when I had put forward in 2001, a dozen years ago, because at that time, everybody was trying to do this. They were trying to starve tumors, and they still are trying to starve tumors. And yet, the starvation was not working because the bevacizumab, Avestin, which is the most widely used antiangiogenic therapy, the monotherapy arm of that had to be terminated because the patients were progressing very rapidly compared to no therapy. So they had to combine bevacizumab with, with the chemotherapy or immune therapy in those trials. So we sort of, in our mind, knew it, but we didn't have, we had to provide evidence for that. So we did that and by developing half a dozen animal models, and we showed, indeed, there was normalization. But natural question is, is this all artifact of mouse work? So we initiated the very first clinical trial at Mass General Hospital to answer this question by colleague uh, Dr. Chris Willett who's now chief of radiation oncology at uh, Duke University. And in that trial in rectal carcinoma patient, we showed that bevacizumab or Avestin, by day 12, we made measurements only in one time point, led to a drop in interstitial fluid pressure and normalization of tumor vessels. But that led to a new set of questions. When does normalization begin? When does it end? What are the molecular players? And does it really help? 
So we went back to bedside, and here we worked with glioblastoma, and uh, two of my postdoctoral fellows, Frank Winkler and Sergey Kozin, showed that the normalization begins in about a day. But unfortunately, the window is only about five days long when the blood vessels become abnormal again. But the good news was that when radiation was given during this window, when hypoxia was alleviated during this window, <clears throat> radiation led to better outcome compared to when radiation was given either before or after this window of normalization. Now there are about nearly 100 papers in the literature that have shown this with their chemotherapeutic agents and a variety of antiangiogenic agents. We also discovered the molecular players involved, and this was those angiotensin, they were angiopoietin 2 signaling and, and MMP activation. So again, as we were finishing this study, the next question came up was, what about if this is all artifact of a mouse tumor? So we initiated a half dozen trials in glioblastoma patients with my colleague, Dr. Tracy Batchelor, who's the head of neuro-oncology at Mass General Hospital, and uh, with uh, Dr. Greg Sorensen, who was at that time head of uh, neuroradiology at Mass General Hospital. And in these trials, and let me just show you one of these, we show indeed the normalization begins in about a day. And this is a tractogram from a patient. And what you show you, this is where the tumor is. <clears throat> and if you're just not aware of the, this MRI technique, just pay attention to simple, these green lines, these green tracks. And you see they're present on this side, but they are absent on this side of the brain. But you see in 27 days later, and earlier actually even, these, these tracks come back. <laughs> And these patients live longer. They, they have better progression-free survival than the historic control and better overall survival. The problem was that there was a tremendous variability in patient response. In some patients, the window of normalization was about a week. In others, it was six months or more. So one of the questions we've been asking in our laboratory, how do we select patients who would benefit from these very expensive and very toxic therapies? So our thinking was the patients where the perfusion would go up should benefit. The patients where the perfusion goes down would not benefit. So we decided to look at the perfusion in these patients in this trial. And, and this is just the result of this clinical trial where we showed that in patients we see a window of normalization, except in mice it's only about five, six days. In patients it's of the order of about a month or so. But again, tremendous variability. So the question we ask is, what about perfusion in these patients' tumors as a functional therapy. And what we found out in this very trial in recurrent glioblastoma, in these patients being treated with an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor known as sidereniv, that in about seven patients, the perfusion actually went up. Now here you are, you're giving antiangiogenic therapy. The whole goal is to starve the tumor, and seven patients' perfusion goes up. In about 10 or so, it remains stable, 12, and then 11, it went down. This was the original goal of antigenic therapy. Now, who do you think is going to live longer? The top guys. These patients, the ones where the perfusion goes up, live about six months longer compared to the rest. So now this could be a pure fluke, maybe, just one trial. So we did another trial, this time in newly diagnosed GBN. This work was published last month. And here, this 40-patient cohort, you see in 20, Perfusion went up, 10 it's stable, and 10 it went down. And when you look at, again, Kaplan-Meier analysis, you find out that patients where the perfusion went up were living approximately nine months. Their median survival was nine months longer compared to patients where the perfusion did not go up. So you'd say, okay, this could be all fluke also because this is all in GVM, and this is all oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So what about vesuzumab and non-CNS setting? 
And the answer is it does, same uh, principle holds there. The work has not been written up yet, but in the new adjuvant trial with bevacizumab with chemotherapy, and another trial with non-cell small cell lung cancer, we find the same thing. This work hopefully will be written up in about a year. So at least there are four trials. What I understood, there's another group now showing this bevacizumab in GBM, they're seeing the same thing. So what I've tried to show you so far is <clears throat> that tumor vessels are abnormal. This abnormality is a result of unbalanced signaling from pro and antigenic molecules. What I've shown you is that if you bring this imbalance to a balanced stage, you can repair the vessels, alleviate hypoxia, improve, oct improve perfusion, and improve survival. So since this work of ours came out, there are about a lot of other uh, laboratories have tried to gain additional insight. And let me show you some of the emerging insight in the area of vascular normalization. The most important message I want to leave here is about normalization is, remember I said to you, the dose has to be just right. If you give too high a dose, you're going to cause too many excessive vessel pruning, starvation. If you do too little, it's not going to do anything. So you have to choose the right, right dose. And so this is our hypothesis, uh, which we had put forward in 2001, that the window of normalization will depend very much on the dose and the time. At very high doses, the window will be very short, and therefore benefit would not be there. It may, may actually harm. But if the dose is lower, the window of normalization would be much longer. So the question is, is there any data showing that? And yes, there are a couple of papers showing the doing that. One of the one from our own laboratory, work for Dr. Yohei Huang, where he treated uh, breast cancer with a control IgG with DC-101, this is the anti-vagal receptor to antibody, with a routinely used dose, 40 milligram, half dose, 20 milligram, and another and a quarter of dose, 10 milligram. And you can see just with naked eye, the perfusion goes up as you lower the dose of 40 milligram down to 20 or, or 10 milligram. And this is quantitative uh, data, where this is a control IgG, this is 40 milligram, 20, and 10 milligram, and you can see actually see increase in perfusion similar to what I showed you in patients, how you can improve perfusion by using the right dose of antiangiogenic therapy. But when you do this, you also alleviate hypoxia. And our thinking was that if we could, this should not only benefit chemotherapy and radiation therapy, but also immune therapy. And I know uh, this was the focus of your conference today, so I just thought I'll put one slide in where we have combined vascular normalization with immune therapy, a vaccine for breast cancer. And what we found out here at this study is that when we use the lower dose of antiangiogenic therapy, 10 milligram, and combine with a vaccine for breast cancer, we find out that survival benefit is the highest compared to when we use a lower dose for an IgG. And this increase occurs due to increased number of CD8 cells that enter the tumor. If you give an anti-CD8 antibody, you can completely abrogate the benefit of this vaccine therapy. So the paradigm or the portrait that emerges that, and this is, in my opinion, will be the biggest impact on normalization in the future, is on immune, improving immune therapy. So our thinking is that currently immune therapy is limited, not only because of checkpoints, but because of hypoxia. And what it does it in two different ways. One is it polarizes the tumor-associated macrophages into the pro-tumor phenotype. So they begin to facilitate tumor growth. And also, 
it deactivates the function of T cells. So this, you need oxygen and for T cells to do their function. You also need normal pH for T cells to function well in the tumor microenvironment. So our thinking was that if you were to normalize tumor vessels with right dose of antiangiogenic therapy, we would alleviate hypoxia and the tumor would be oxygenated. So we'd polarize the tumor-associated macrophages into the anti-tumor phenotype. And we would increase the delivery of T cells, especially CD8 cells, and will also make them more active. And indeed, that's exactly what uh, this uh, work of Dr. Yue uh, uh, Huang shows. And not only this study, but there are right now eight studies in the literature that are showing that if you were to combine uh, immune therapy with a variety of antiangiogenic agents or a genetic approach, you find out that there's an improvement, improved outcome. So as after we figure out, after you run our checkpoint therapies, PD-1, CTLA-4, we're going to run to the same wall known as hypoxia. And at that point, I think we need to think about how do we, how do we improve therapies. And I have the feeling that this would be one such approach along with Losartan or other approaches which I showed you on improving perfusion of the tumors. So what I've done so far is shown you where the field of normalization is heading and hopefully will make the biggest impact. But that's not the only place. Normalization and our thinking is going to benefit about half a billion people worldwide where the disease is characterized by abnormal vasculature. <clears throat> and Dr. Peter Kamalit and I tried to summarize these uh, 70 diseases in an article 12 years ago, 13 years ago in Scientific American. And one such disease is macular degeneration. Remember, in macular degeneration, there are three drugs approved anti-VEGF drugs. What do you think they do? Do you think they starve AI? That was the original rationale for developing them. Actually, if you starve you, blood supply of the eye, you'll go blind. Your eyesight will not go up. They actually repair blood vessels. They're normalized vessels. But then the other diseases, and I don't have time to go over all of them, but let me just give you one example where uh, our work is now leading to a new therapy, and that is schwannomas. These are the benign tumors that grow in the nerves in the ear. And when they do, uh, they, this is the growth. This leads to three types of adverse uh, consequences. These patients become deaf, or they lose balance. And if the tumor is growing close to the brainstem, if it's pressing the brainstem, then it's, this can be fatal. And currently, the only therapies are radiation or surgery. But none of them fix these problems. They are palliative, in a way, because the things just come back. And there's no medical therapy. So we decide to look at the blood vessels of these tumor, benign tumors, about 10 years ago. And they look as abnormal as the blood vessels of any malignant tumor. So we ask the question, why don't we repair these vessels? Why don't we normalize them? Not using the high doses of Avastin, which you give to cancer patients, but much lower doses. And when we did that, these patients, the hearing of these patients came back. 60% of these patients, this is the very first trial published, this is now uh, four years ago, where these patients with the neurofibromatosis to bilateral schwannomas, in these patients, 10 patients in this trial, 60% regained their hearing within about two weeks after taking Avastin. And what is remarkable is some of these patients are still on Avastin four years later. And when they go on vacation or forget to take their medication, the hearing just flops, drops. And then when they start taking it again, it comes back. So it tells you how plastic their vessels are. And unlike malignant tumor, these benign tumors do not develop escape mechanisms they still remain dependent on VEGF. A malignant tumor would have switched to something else. 
So there are going to be a lot of diseases, stabilization of cardiac plaque, and so on and so forth, where this simple concept would be, in our thinking, is would be useful. So this work has led to now about half a dozen randomized trials using both bevacizumab and, and a number of oral thiocene kinase inhibitors. So hopefully next several years we maybe have a approved a drug for this indication. So um, I want to uh, end my presentation or towards the end, the last uh, third of my presentation or last quarter, I'm going to spend on a topic which is a, an important topic nowadays, and that is biomarkers for antigenogenic therapy. So if you look at last 20 years of cancer drug approvals, last decade has been just phenomenal. So many targeted therapies have been approved <clears throat> that target either blood vessels that are antiangiogenic or that target cancer pathos. And what do you think is the survival benefit from these drugs? Somebody in the last row, how these drugs cost fifty to hundred thousand dollars per year. How much do you think they how much survival benefit do you get from these? A few months. That's it. Well, all our investment and gene sequencing, we're going to get maybe from a few months, we're going to go to a year, or maybe two years. That's it. And in the case of targeted therapies, we at least know what the biomarkers are. You would not give Herceptin to every woman who has breast cancer. You would look for her too. Well, what do you think they do for anti-angiogenic therapy? There are no biomarkers. That would be like giving Herceptin to every woman. Or giving EGFR blocker to every person, every cancer patient who has lung cancer, for example. <laughs> but we don't do that. But <laughs> we do this, and in, 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 in the currently, the drug market, about one-fourth of the drug market goes to anti-angiogenic therapy. It's about $40 billion per year, about $10 billion goes to antiangiogenic therapy. And $6 billion out of that goes to Avastin right now. It's going to probably go up to $11 billion once China opens up its floodgates. So we have been struggling in our own lab as to what, how can we help these? How can we identify these patients? So what we did, essentially, we initiated in the last decade 22 trials at National Hospital in collaboration with my colleagues in a variety of indications and using a variety of anti-angiogenic drugs. And bear with me, I'm not going to go over all these 22 trials. I'll just show you the results of just a couple of them. And with a very simple goal, can we identify biomarkers that will help us select these patients who would benefit? I showed you one such biomarker already, perfusion. If the perfusion goes up, those patients would benefit. But that costs money, so it would be nice if you could have a baseline biomarker. And what we found out, the patients that have very high levels of soluble VEGF R1, that's a receptor for VEGF, a soluble VEGF receptor, which sort of mops up all the VEGF. So these patients who have very high levels of soluble VEGF R1, they do not respond to antigenic. We've seen this in five trials. But what do you do when patients respond initially, then they fail, they become resistant? How do you identify biomarkers for those? Mm -hmm. So what we have done in these trials is we're looking at the plasma levels of 40 cytokines in the circulation. We're trying to see what correlates with the poor outcome versus better outcome. 
And in interest of time, I'll just show you one such finding, and that is what we have found is in the five different trials, when patients in their circulation, STF1 alpha, stromal drive factor 1 alpha goes up, these patients stop responding to anti-VEGF therapy. And for either bevacizumab or three different tyrosine kinases in which are sunitinib, serafinib, and sedarinib, and a variety of different tumors. <clears throat> what is remarkable is the STF and alpha comes from different sources in each tumor. And what is even more remarkable is that the receptor for STF and alpha is activated in different cell types. So let me show you one example that is of glioblastoma. What we have found out is the STF and alpha CFCR4 axis is involved in vessel co-option. So bear with me. This slide is unpublished work of a former postdoc fellow, Ed Kirkpatrick. What is shown here is green color represents blood vessels in the brain of a mouse. Red color represents glioblastoma cells that, be, that have been labeled with DS red. The primary GBM sitting at the bottom of the screen. And when you start giving these animals high doses of anti-VEGF therapy, cancer cells begin to walk away from the primary tumor like this, away from the primary tumor, begin to co-opt the host vessel. And they do so, this is what you see also in a certain fraction of cancer patients. They presumably receive very high doses of bevacizumab or Vestin or anti-VEGF therapy for those particular tumors. And what we have found is that if you block CFCR4 pathway, this co-option stops. And based on this finding, our colleague at, uh, at Harvard, at Dana-Farber, Dr. Patrick Wen, who's the head of neuro-oncology at Dana-Farber and Brigham, he has initiated a clinical trial. This trial has accrued now about 15 patients, uh, where we're combining uh, a well-known uh, approved drug known as Plerexifor that blocks this pathway with bevacizumab for recurrent mm -hmm. high-grade uh, brain tumors. And uh, so far, we have accrued only about 15 patients, and the hope is that in in about a year or two, we should know if this therapy helps these patients. So what I've given you some indication of where we're heading in case of biomarkers, at least for the adult tumors. Now, what do you do for pediatric tumors? Now, pediatric tumors offer a different type of challenge. You cannot, you can, but it's not good to give them anti-VEGF agents because VEGF is required for growth. So, the, our bone growth requires VEGF. So if you, VEGF knockout mice are stunted because they do not have the bone growth. That work published by Dr. Napoleon Ferrara almost 15 years ago in Nature Medicine. So if you cannot give them VEGF, what do you do? And right now, these patients don't have very good options. They receive radiation and chemo and that they, they develop a lot of neurological problems as a result. And so we decided to look at it, and what we discovered in the interest of time, I'll, this is my last couple of slides, what we discovered uh, in, in our laboratory is that a member of VEGF family known as placenta growth factor serves as a survival factor for these cancer cells. So if you block this pathway, it stops the growth and spread of medulloblastoma. And let me just show you some of the data. So these, are the, these tumors grow in the cerebellum, so this is an untreated uh, animals that receive control antibody. And this is where the tumor grows in these uh, animals. And you can see that it begins to metastasize. There's three weeks, six weeks, and you see that it's a spread from, from cerebellum down the spinal cord, through the spinal fluid. This is what happens to patients. 
And when this happens, there's kind of, there's, right now there's no treatment. They radiate these patients with proton beam, and National is one of the leaders in this area, except they lose their IQ about five per year. They develop neurocognitive deficits, hormonal problems, imbalances, and so on and so forth. So we, when you, but if you give these animals an antibody against PLGF, you see right here. And if you want to see a little more details, what you see is that anti-PLGF antibody leads to regression of these tumors and improves the survival tremendously. And the way it does it is summarized in an editorial and a commentary written by Ann Pollock about her work in New England Journal of Medicine, is that the medulloblastoma cancer cells produce sonic hedgehog that goes to nearby host cells, in this case external granule cells, and they begin to produce PLGF. And this PLGF binds to neuropilin, it's a receptor on cancer cells, and survive, serves as a survival factor. So if you can block the circuit by blocking either PLGF or neuropilin with an antibody, you can essentially stop their growth as well as spread of these tumors. So the, this is, again, mouse work. Is there any human correlate of this work? So we have looked at 42 patients cohort from Germany, where uh, what we have found out, the patients with medulloblastoma that have low levels of neuropilin 1, they have better prognosis compared to the patients who have high levels of neuropilin 1. And currently, in our laboratory, in collaboration with, the, uh, with our clinician colleagues at National Hospital, we are planning a clinical trial. So hopefully in 2014, we'll start treating these kids uh, with the anti-PLGF antibody. So let me just summarize my presentation by saying that what I've conveyed to you is that normal blood vessels and matrix create a hostile metabolic and mechanical tumor microenvironment, which is characterized by hypoxia, low pH, high interstitial fluid pressure, and high solid stress. These abnormalities fuel tumor progression, metastasis, immunosuppression, and they induce treatment resistance. Normalization can improve outcome various therapies, and I'll give you examples of each. Normalization can also help treatment outcome various non-neoplastic diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration or schwannomas driven by NF2. And I did not have time to go over all the data, but I mentioned that, that soluble VEGF R1 is intrinsic resistant to anti-VEGF therapy. And I gave you example of one evasive pathway, and it's STF1-alpha-CXCR4, and we are working on others in our laboratory. And finally, what I showed you was the targeting PLGF and neuropilin one pathway can inhibit tumor growth and spread of pediatric medulloblastoma. So none of this work would have been possible, as I described to you, without my colleagues at Mass General, who are the clinical collaborators who are leading these 22 trials, as well as we are grateful to the patients who have participated in these trials. I'm also very fortunate to have uh, terrific colleagues Edwin, in Mass General Hospital and Steel Laboratory, and of which eight of them are faculty members, assistant associate professors, whose name and work I uh, described and with whom I've had the pleasure to collaborate. But believe me, none of this would have been possible, what I've described to you today, without the collaboration of uh, about 200 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows I've had over my career, and some of them are here. So thank you very much, and I'll be happy to answer any questions.
there's no doubt about it, uh, oximetry would be good. But in August, we published a paper, Nature Medicine, where we have shown how with the standard MR, you can measure non-eperfusion, but also with uh, you can measure oxygen delivery to the tumors. I, in the interest of time, I did not show that data, but Kiri Emblem is the first author of that paper. And that way, you don't have to have two different modalities, but the same MR technique can be adapted, not only to measure perfusion, and, but also to measure oxygen delivery to the tumor. I'll be happy to discuss that offline with you. Yes? I'm here. <laughs> How does tumor to the normalization actually affect the permeability characteristics of the tumor? So permeability goes down when you give normalized vessels. And last year, in 2012, we had a paper in Nature Nanotechnology, uh, where the first author was Vikas Chauhan, uh, a PhD student at that time. What he showed was that, yes, you reduce uh, vessel permeability when you normalize vessels but only up to a point. You never make vessels totally normal. So what he showed in that paper is that the normalization would help nanoparticles of the size of about 10 or 20 nanometers, like abraxane, which is about 10 nanometer. But what he showed in that paper was, at least for the tumors he studied, at 16 nanometer onwards, the benefit disappears. And it makes sense, <clears throat> because permeability comes from these pores in the tumor vessel wall. And, and you begin to make the pore size smaller, only the smaller particles will be together. So it's a very good question. Are you recruiting new macrophages or are you polarizing resident macrophages? So the work we have done so far in our laboratory looks like we are polarizing resident macrophages. But there are other studies coming out from other laboratory that are showing there's also influx of polarized macrophages. So I have the feeling it's going to be very tumor dependent, but the benefit is going to be there whether you bring new macrophages or, or, or the ones which are there get polarized into anti-tumor <coughs> phenotype. Yes? How do you know that the primary culprit is uh, hypoxia instead of hypercapnia or other metabolic byproducts? I don't know that. Uh, all I can tell you is that they go hand in hand usually. So when hypoxia is there, usually you see low pH. And as uh, Cliff SK's PhD work showed 22 years ago, CO2 is a big culprit there, you know, and not lactic acid so much. So. Uh, Everybody thinks pH comes from lactic acid in tumors, but mostly comes from CO2. Uh, so yes, that's our thinking. So, and our point is that if you repair the vasculature, you're gonna repair a lot of metabolic abnormalities besides just oxygen and pH. We just have focused on two because we know how to measure them quickly. <laughs> it doesn't stop there. Perhaps a more elegant MR study should show, should be pursued to answer other metabolic changes. Yes? Just wondering about trinomas and necessarily trinomas, the blood vessels are not very abnormal, almost completely normal. And the question is if vascular endothelial growth factor could have effect on other cells like mastocytes, which are very applied in trinomas or in other types of tumors, that it could be really so much effect on the blood vessel itself, but on other cells that are in the tumor microenvironment. 
So you're, you're asking a very good question there, which is, <clears throat> does Avastin affect other cells in the Shonova microenvironment? The answer is probably yes. I don't have an answer to your question because we have developed uh, a Schwannoma preclinical model in our laboratory and we have published so far only one or two papers using that. A colleague of mine is, Dr. Leishu is now working on that model and try to answer questions about what else is being affected by this. Ideally for that Schwannoma treatment, what we would like to do is something that activates semaphore in 3A because that would be a better normalizing agent than VEGF blocker. But those drugs right now don't exist. So that's why we had to use uh, Devisuzumab. And you saw the results. I mean, as I said, these, some of these patients are on it for four years. Yes, sir. So related to that, um, and, and regarding your immunostimulatory effects, uh, myeloid cells are known to express VGF receptor 2, and VGF is a very known factor in preventing the maturation of antigen-presenting cells and retaining them. So that may, you know, maybe yeah. independent of blood vessel normalization. A absolutely. So the VEGF has a lot of bad things it does to the immune system. <laughs> you know, maturation of dendritic cell is one of them, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. so we, in the interest of time, I just talked about some parts of this. We wrote a review on this early this year in cancer research. And there you can see all the a a table which other effects of this. And the first author of this is Dr. Yue Huang. So please take a look at that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, what What is the role of the lymphatics in this? Uh, you know, in your first one of your first slides, you sort of show these vessels, and presumably these also get compressed yep. and, and are subject to the same yep. um, pressures. Have you looked at that explicitly? Yes, we have actually. Uh, just before I was giving my choosing what slides to show uh, for this talk, I just took out the whole section on lymphatics. I was going to talk about lymphatics for about 20 minutes because our laboratory has spent a lot of time on looking at lymphatic biology. And we developed the very first intraviral lymphangiography technique shown right here. See these lymphatics light up? And what happens in tumors, when you grow a tumor in the lymph, they are dysfunctional because they're compressed. So right here. And you can see in this uh, breast cancer also, no lymphatics. And indeed, you can open them. And they lead to hypertension. They're part of the reason why you see hypertension. And that's why, so the question is where, how does cancer cells metastasize with nearby lymph node? To do that, we developed another animal model where you could track their journey of cancer cells. What you find out is this is how they travel from primary tumor. And they go to nearby lymph nodes. And that's where they grow, like this. And when you give them antivirus receptor 3 antibody, you see a decrease in their arrival. Or if you give an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, you also see that. So I had a whole section on lymphatics, and we are currently working on it. So sorry about rushing through that part of the talk. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a, so not only we look at blood vessels, we look at a lot of our effort right now is on matrix, and some of our effort is on lymphatics. And it is in proportional to what leads to lethality. All right. Well, right on time. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for coming up to give this talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.